Ephesians 3.20 is certainly one of my most favorite verses in all the Bible. I guess of all the verses of encouragement concerning prayer and concerning providence, I've hung my hat on that verse probably as much as any verse in the entire Word of God. This morning I want to bring your attention to three different divisions of the Psalms. Psalms 22, 23, and 24. Now, I know you're familiar, quite familiar with Psalm 23. There are 150 Psalms, and Psalms 23, I'm sure by far, is the most well-known, most well-thought-of or quoted of all the Psalms. If I was to ask you what Psalm starts out, the Lord is my shepherd, I'm sure, hopefully everybody would say, Psalms 23. Well, if I was to ask you how does Psalms 23 start out, I think most all of you probably could say, the Lord is my shepherd. That's how many times you've heard it quoted, how many times you've heard it maybe spoke on. Maybe that's a favorite psalm of yours whenever you are down and you need some encouragement. So you turn to the book of Psalms, you turn to Psalms 23, and that's, that's all well and good. But when you read Psalm 23... Go and read Psalm 22. When you get through reading Psalms 23, don't stop till you read Psalms 24. And the reason I say that is because Psalms 22, 23, and 24 are all what we call messianic psalms. They're all about Jesus, in other words. Psalm 22 pictures him as the good shepherd. Psalm 23 pictures him as the great and caring shepherd. And Psalms 24 refers to him as the chief shepherd who comes for his sheep. Psalms 22 describes what he did in the past when he suffered for our sins and saved us from our sins. Psalms 23 describes the love of the Lord for us presently and his care for us. Psalms 24 points us to the future. I like the threes concerning this. You know, in 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, Paul said, for we had the sentence of death within ourselves, and we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who hath delivered us, that's past, so, so great a death, who doth deliver us, that's, that's present, and whom we trust will deliver us, and that's future. So Psalms 22 is about the past, Psalms 23 is about the present, and Psalms 24 is about the future. Now, in Psalms 22, we have some very minute, explicit details concerning the sufferings and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are many uh, internal, you might say, evidences within the Bible that the Bible itself was written by divine inspiration. Psalms 22 is a classic example. And the reason for this is when David penned down the words of Psalms 22, the Jewish people knew nothing about crucifixion. Nothing. The word crucify, crucified, or crucifixion is not in the Old Testament at all. It was a Roman thing. They knew nothing about crucifixion. And yet here's David writing in detail things about a crucifixion. So how did David write things in detail about a crucifixion when he wasn't even aware of crucifixion because he wrote with divine inspiration and in this particular chapter there's no less than at least seven uh, references 
or prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his sufferings and his crucifixion. Now, a couple things uh, about that. Jesus Christ is the only man in human history of which you can read where there was prophecies concerning his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection hundreds of years before they ever happened. He's the only man in human history that that's, you can say that about. He's also the only man I have never heard of who lived and died that's never been referred to as the late Jesus. You ever heard that? You ever everybody refer to Jesus as the late Jesus? I mean, that's the expression we use about somebody who has lived and has died, no longer with us. We say, well, the late Bill Jones, the late Mary Spencer, or whatever. We're just saying, here's a person who did live, and they passed away. Uh, have you ever heard anybody say the late Jesus? You haven't, I'm sure. There's a reason for that, because he's not the late Jesus. In Revelation 1.18, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm he that liveth. Was dead, behold, I'm alive forevermore. So the Lord Jesus Christ did die, but he arose again and lives for us today. 1 Corinthians 15 opens up that manner in that way. Paul says, Moreover, brother, I declare unto you the gospel. Wherein you have received, wherein you stand, whereby you shall be saved. If you keep in memory those things I preached unto you, remembering first of all how Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, but also how he was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. And Paul's talking about Old Testament scripture here. The Old, scripture, Old Testament scripture spoke about his crucifixion, spoke about his death, spoke about his offering, sacrifice, spoke about his burial, spoke about his resurrection, hundreds and hundreds of years before it ever happened. So we look in Psalm 22, and how does it start off? It says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Have you ever heard that before? Well, those are the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ that you find in the 27th chapter in the book of Matthew, verse 46. Jesus is on the cross, and when he was placed on that cross, he will make seven statements, all very worthy of your study and consideration. But one of the last statements he made, he made it at the ninth hour, according to Matthew and Mark. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, David pinned this down hundreds of years before Jesus ever said it, before Jesus was on the cross, hundreds of years. How did he know to pin them down that way? How did he know to write these words? Once again, by divine inspiration. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Who art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season am not silent. Here we find where the Lord speaks about the daytime and the nighttime, the day and the night season. When the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon the cross, he was placed there at the third hour of the day. And he stayed on that cross until the ninth hour of the day. Usually the way that Jews measured time, that would be from 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And from 9 to 12, they were three daylight hours. From 12 to 3, three nighttime hours. Jesus hung on the cross, equal time in daylight and nighttime. And the Lord spoke out to his Father during the daylight hours and the nighttime hours. How about you? Do you just pray to the Lord in the daytime? 
or do you ever talk to him at night? You know, I've said before that my problems and troubles don't start at 8 in the morning, stop at 5 in the afternoon to yours. My problems come to me around the clock. <laughs> maybe 3 in the afternoon, maybe 3 in the morning. Maybe 5 in the afternoon, 5 in the morning. Telephone may ring at 9 at night or 9 in the morning or 2 in the morning. I mean, my problems don't have a start time and my problems don't have an end time. And the Lord Jesus Christ, hanging upon that cross, hung three hours of daytime and three hours of darkness, prompted him to cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I spoke a couple weeks ago from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Let's go back and visit that just for a moment for a thought here. We find here where Paul says, Let, not your, let your conversation rather be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That we may say, boldly say, the Lord is my helper. To whom shall I fear? What man shall I, what shall I fear that man may do to me? But notice what he said. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He said something to you that he didn't apply to his own son. His own son is hanging on a cross as if he was the vilest sinner who ever lived. Yet he had never sinned and never transgressed his father's law, God's law. And yet the father had to forsake his son for a moment so that he would never forsake you. He had to forsake his son for just a moment, for a while, so that you could live with him in glory one sweet day. Isn't that something? Isn't that wonderful? That he would be willing to do that. And he saw his son being buffeted. He saw his son having the spear plucked out of his face. He saw his son being scourged with a cat of nine tails. He heard the mockery. He saw him being reviled. And yet, he forsook him for a while so that he would never forsake you. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then we come to verse 6. He says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. You read these same words in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, once again. But I thought this morning, just uh, actually a little while ago, when I was sitting on the pew, when the Lord said, I am a worm, surely those words could not have come from his lips, not from the immaculate Son of God not from who is righteous personified and holy personified. Surely we're talking about Jesus, the Son of God. We're talking about the only sinless man who ever lived here upon the face of this earth. What did he say, say about himself concerning this prophetic statement made again hundreds of years before he lived here? Remember what Hebrews 2 tells us. He says, For he took not upon himself the nature of angels, but rather the seed of Abraham. He took upon himself humanity, but yet he was sinless. But in this situation, this context here, he says, I'm just a worm. You know, Job asked this question in Job chapter 25. How can man be just with God? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Now, Job is teaching something here about depravity, right? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? If you have something unclean, it's impossible to bring something clean out of it, Right? How can he be just with God? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? 
He said, Behold the moon, it's not pure in his sight, nor the stars. That beautiful moon, those stars we speak about from time to time, Job says they're not pure in the sight of God. Then he says, How much less man who is a worm, or the son of man who is a worm? He says, Apart from God and your human nature, you're no better than a worm of the dust. The Lord referred to Jacob this way, reading Isaiah 41, 14. He says, And thou fear not, O thou worm Jacob. He said, Because I'll be with thee, I will help thee, I'll redeem thee. Even though we, like Jacob, are worms by human nature, we have the promise that God will help us. We have the promise that God will redeem us, and God will deliver us. Is that not a picture of grace? You see, I see grace all the way through the Bible. I don't just have to go to Ephesians chapter 1 or Romans chapter 8, other portions of the New Testament to get a, a statement about God's grace. I see pictures of God's grace throughout the Word of God. Fear not, O thou worm Jacob. What is man who's nothing but a worm, Job says, or even the son of man who is a worm? The Lord here says, I am a worm and a reproach of men. Why would he be that way? Well, one reason he's light personified, he lived in a world of darkness. You know one thing darkness doesn't like? It doesn't like light. Jesus made this very plain and clear uh, in his teachings. Darkness does not let like light because light makes manifest what's done in the darkness, right? <laughs> so if you ever go to an establishment and you got to get your wife to get her flashlight out of the purse to read the menu or something, I'd just say, go out. Just leave, go on. Uh, if you're in that kind of a dark place, it's just better for you not to be there. Plus the fact they're trying to hide the prices. And if you've got to have a flashlight to see it, you're, you're just in the wrong place. All right? But darkness does not like light. And Jesus Christ was light personified. And he lives in, lived for 33 years in a world of darkness. Therefore, darkness hates light because it reproves the deeds that's done in darkness, things that's done in secrecy. The Bible condemns things done in secrecy. The Bible condemns that which is done in darkness, you see. So he says, I'm a, a worm and a reproach unto men. Now, in Isaiah 53, 3, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How could the only righteous, sinless, holy man who's ever walked the shores of time be described in this manner, in this way, because of man's severe depravity? Every once in a while, we get a news report and and I'll tell Karen, I says, if anybody's got a corner on understanding man's depravity, it's the primitive Baptist. We preach about depravity all the time. And yet even some things I read that's being done still shocks me. How could anybody do that to somebody else? How could anybody, I don't care how depraved they are, do that to somebody else? But they do. We read about it every day, hear about it on the news every day. You know, no matter what your understanding of depravity is, man's even more depraved than that. That's just what it comes down to, what it boils down to. There's nothing in this world that man will not do for the price of money, the price of fame, the price of fortune, or just simply for pride, ego, one thing or another. He's capable of anything and everything. Don't ever forget that. And the Lord says, I'm a worm and a reproach among men. All that see me laugh me to scorn. Can you imagine that? They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord. He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. 
but thou art he that took me out of the womb. That makes me to hope when I was upon my mother's breast. Now, David is writing this, and David's relating his own experience in, in this 22nd Psalm as well, but he's pointing to a greater David, to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When did David make, uh, when did God make David hope? It was when he was upon his mother's breast. See, that's, that's a little bit too young to uh, uh, obtain a hope by your belief or by exercising your faith or performing some kind of condition, isn't it? He, David said, I had a hope in Christ when I was upon my mother's breast. Now, sometimes I talk to people and they will tell me there's never been a time in their life when they feel like they didn't have a love for God. And, and I certainly believe that because I know God borns his people oftentimes before they ever see the light of day. He borns them of the Spirit of God. He makes them hope when, there's a, when they're upon their mother's breast. Here the Lord is speaking about his connection with the Father, going all the way back. He says, I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Now let's look at that last expression. How many was there to help the Lord? None. That's zero. There is none to help. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 63 and verse 5, the writer says, I looked and I wondered that there was none to help. I wonder why there was no intercessor. Therefore, my own arm hath brought salvation unto me. Nobody was there to help the Lord. In Matthew chapter 26, you're going to find where the Lord was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Being in the Garden of Gethsemane, they came to take him. And Peter, in his great bonus, drew his sword, cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And the Lord rebuked Peter, telling him to put up his sword. He that liveth by the sword shall die by the sword. And that's where he says, Thank you not, I can call upon my Father. And right now he had sent 12 legions of angels, which would be 72,000 angels from heaven that would deliver me and rescue me if that was my purpose, if I wanted to be. He says, Put your sword up, Peter. And the Lord showed his compassion. The Lord showed his power by taking the ear of the servant of the high priest and placing it back upon the side of his head and healing him instantly right then. It didn't take a day, a week, or a month to heal. You know, you break a, break a thumb, you break a, a leg, an arm, you know, you're looking six weeks, 12 weeks, whatever. When Jesus healed, he always healed instantaneously. Instantaneously. And so that's what the Lord did there. But when they took Jesus away, the Bible says the scripture was fulfilled that all his disciples departed and forsook him and left him. Now, the disciples did something to Jesus that Jesus never did to them. Jesus never forsook them, just like he'll never forsake you. But they all forsook him, every single one of them. They forsook him when they took him away there. Now, there was none to help him. They all left him. Of course, what Jesus came to do, he didn't need any help, number one. <laughs> and if he had, no man was qualified to assist him or help him in the work of redemption. It took a perfect offering, a perfect sacrifice, a shedding of perfect blood, sinless blood, and only Jesus Christ was qualified to do that, you see. So there was none to help. He then described some of the circumstances around his suffering, around his crucifixion. We won't go into the details about that. But let's look in verse 16. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, you won't find where it says that per se in the Gospels. But you do find where they crucified him. And you couldn't crucify somebody if you didn't nail their hands and their feet to a wooden cross. 
when they nailed his hands and his feet to that wooden cross, they pierced his hands and they pierced his feet. Now, I don't tell you, that's got, that had to be excruciating pain to be nailed to a wooden cross. He said, they pierced my hands and my feet. See, all this is prophecy being fulfilled hundreds of years down the road. I emphasize once again, the Jewish people knew nothing about crucifixion. Nothing. So how does David write all these things about crucifixion? How does he write all these things in, in uh, explicit detail concerning the suffering and the crucifixion of the Lord? You're going to find this 22nd Psalm, verse 1 through verse 22, is going to describe the pain, the suffering, and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he talks about piercing his hands and his feet. He says in verse 17, I may tell all my bones, they took and stare upon me. You'll find that fulfilled also in the sufferings of Christ. You read about it in the book of Luke 23 and verse 35. It says, they stood and they behold him. Now, those that were around him, reviling him and beholding him, fall in three categories. There were those that just passed by. And then there was the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. That's the religious leaders among the Jewish people. And then the Bible says there was two thieves that Christ was crucified between, and they cast the same into his teeth. In other words, they just threw it right in his face. Thou be to Christ, come down from the cross. You trusted in God, you delivered others, let him deliver thee now. Let him deliver from the cross, and we will believe thee. That's the scene I want you to see here this morning. And we haven't even gotten to the point where God poured out his judgment on sin upon his own son on the cross. We're just talking about what men did to Christ, how they reviled him, how they insulted him, how they mocked him, how they um, treated him with words and with actions, how they, uh, again, uh, scourged him and buffeted him and smote him aside in the face, etc. And they blindfolded and smote him and said, Now, tell us, who smote you? Oh, the Lord knew who done it. <laughs> he knew who did it. They stared at him. And let's take a look. Just a little further concerning the casting of the, his garments and them gambling. You know, uh, you read about this in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. In John's Gospel, you're going to find when the soldiers, and these are Roman soldiers, not Jews, okay? Roman soldiers. When they had the Lord Jesus Christ there, they says they parted his garments in four parts, and they just divided them among the soldiers. So we knew they had four soldiers. They parted his garments in four parts and gave each part to a soldier. But it says his, uh, his outer garment, his robe, was woven from top to bottom. It was seamless. And they said, let's don't rend this. Let's don't tear this. Let's just cast lots for it. Now I've got a question for you. Those soldiers had no idea Psalms 22 was on record. They knew nothing about Psalms 22. They didn't know Psalms 22 said, uh, spoke about them gambling for his garments. They didn't know anything about that. Now let's suppose they had rendered, that is to have torn his garments. What would that have done? Well, the scripture then wouldn't have been fulfilled. God's word would not have been accurate. God's word would not have been truthful. God would not have been true himself. But you see, God is true. His word is accurate. And they did part his garments, and they did gamble. They casted a lot, my friends, uh, for his coat, because, again, it was woven from top to bottom, but they knew nothing about what David wrote about in Psalms 22 about them gambling for his clothes. Not one thing, and yet that's exactly what they did. You cannot read this book 
You cannot read this book with an open and honest mind, an objective mind, and not come away shaking your head saying, no human mind ever penned these words down. Now, starting in verse 23, the scene changes, changes dramatically. Notice what he says in verse 23. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all ye seed of Israel. Well, that's verse 23. Verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. You know where that's written in the New Testament? It's written in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 explains exactly what this statement means. And here's where Paul brings his statement from. He brings right here from Psalms 22. He says in verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, why is that in there? Why was he made lower than the angels? First of all, angels don't die. All right? Jesus came to die. Jesus took himself humanity. The Lord Jesus Christ came to lay, lay his life down. He came to die for the sins of his people. So we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for what? For suffering and death. Notice the two things. For suffering first, death second. But we see Jesus who made a little lower than the angels for suffering and death, crowned, thank God for this, with honor and glory, that he might taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory. <laughs> now pay attention to what he said there. The every man is the many sons. How many is God going to bring to glory? Many, not a few. He's going to bring many. Now let's see where else Paul used that word many. He used it in Romans 8, 29, didn't he? Over whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus used the word many, did he not? In John chapter 14, you believe in God, believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many mansions. How many? Many. Don't know how many. <laughs> many. The definition of many is the greater part of the whole. Old Baptists have never preached a few in heaven. We've always preached God's got many going to be in heaven. We preach God's got a people out of a nation, kindred, tongue, and people that no man can number. Now, listen again. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory, for both he that sanctifieth and they which sanctified are all of one, of which he says, He shall praise thy name in the midst of the church among the brethren. Now we got a picture where his name is praised. Where is it praised? It's praised in the church. It's praised in the midst of the brethren. Jesus calls you brethren. How about that? That ought to make you feel pretty good here this morning. Somebody says, Brother Lawrence, you know, uh, old Baptists just don't give uh, uh, people enough credit. No, the problem is they don't like the credit we give. When you start calling somebody worms, uh, they don't particularly like that too much. kind of goes against <laughs> the grain, so to speak. When you start calling people the dust of the earth, the grass of the field, oh, they don't like that too much. When you start telling people they're not good, no, there's none good, and you're not righteous, no, you're not. Your feet are swift to shed blood, etc., etc. And I can go on and on about this. People by nature don't like that too much. But I want you to understand there's another kind of recognition in order to lift you up. And that is the fact that you're an heir of God and a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a son of God. You're a son of the King. You are the son of the Creator God. And you have a Heavenly Father. And when you pray, you pray not only to God, you pray to a Father in Heaven. you got a Father in Heaven, it means you are a son of the Father. A father's not a father without a son. A son's not a son without a father. You understand? <laughs> For both he that sanctifieth and they which sanctify, they're all of one. 
for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. The Lord's not ashamed to call you brethren. I'm not ashamed to call you brethren. I'm not ashamed to call you sister, whether it's here in the house of God or wherever else it might be. Reminds me of a little story. I know I've told this in the past. Uh, there's always somebody hadn't heard it. Anyway, years and years ago, Brother Ira Carlton, state of Florida, uh, him and his wife wanted to take me and Karen shopping, me in particular, and buy me a sport coat. And we went into the, into the store, and uh, I tried this one on, that one on, and I said, we'd say, what do you think about this one, Brother Ira? What do you think about this one? And he's giving his opinion. Since he's paying for it, I wanted his opinion. But anyway, of course, I would not have accepted an orange one. Okay, or a green one or whatever. But anyway, finally, uh, I put it on. And the lady helping us, she turned to Brother Ira and said, What do you think, Brother Ira? What do you think about this? <laughs> That's probably the first time she's ever used the word brother in a setting like that. But I'm not ashamed to call you brother. And Christ's not ashamed to call you brother. He died for you, didn't he? He loved you with everlasting love, didn't he? He left heaven's pure world to come and live for 33 years in a sin-cursed earth, did he not? Well, if he's willing to do all of that, He's not going to be ashamed to call you brethren. This is how the latter part of this, this chapter goes. I'm not going to read all the details about it. But the scene, I want you to see the break between verse 22 and verse 23, how the scene totally changed because the first 20 verses is about the suffering and persecution and crucifixion of Jesus. But the last verses from 23 to 31 is about his glory, his exaltation, and his resurrection. Notice how it ends in verses 30 and 31. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. Who's going to serve him? A seed. You know what that means? That means down through the generations of time, there's always been a remnant, just a remnant that has served God in sincerity and in truth and in spirit. He said, a seed shall serve him. That's the promise God made until he comes again to the end of time. There's going to be at least a seed, a remnant that's going to serve him and dedicate themselves to him in the pathway of discipleship. And then verse 31, he says, there shall be a people that shall be born that he hath done this. That's the same expression that Jesus used in John 19, 30 when he says, it is finished. When the Lord said it is finished, whatever he came to do, it was finished. You'd have to agree with that at least, wouldn't you? Whatever he came to do and he said it's finished, it had to be finished. What did he come to do? Matthew 1, 21 says he came to save his people from their sins. That's how chapter, or Psalms 22 ends. It's showing the work of the good shepherd and the resurrection of Christ. He's our great shepherd. Let's take a look at Psalms 23 here just for a moment. I woke up uh, two or three mornings ago and Psalm 23 was just impressed heavily on my mind. I don't know why it just was, but I was glad about it. I like Psalm 23, so that was fine with me. He said, he does not say the Lord is our shepherd. That'd be true, wouldn't it? But see, this is personal here. In Psalms 23, you've got 16 personal pronouns in these six chapters in Psalms 23. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. You're not going to get a passage of scripture anywhere that's any more personal individual than Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's the theme of Psalms 23. This is what he's doing for us now. As our great shepherd has risen from the dead, who's on the right hand of God to make intercession for us. The Lord is my shepherd, personal, individual. The Lord is my shepherd. Now you can say the same thing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
A little girl one time was going to recite this. She got it backwards. She says, the Lord is my shepherd. What else shall I want? <laughs> she didn't get it exactly right, but she hit the nail on the head at the same time, didn't she? The Lord is my shepherd. What else shall I want? If he's your shepherd, what else shall you want? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You shall not want what? Rest and refreshment. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Visualize this in your mind if you will. Now, he's talking about an oriental shepherd. What did an oriental shepherd do? That's a little different than shepherds here in the United States, you might say. The oriental shepherd, my friends, is described in John chapter 10. When the Lord Jesus Christ describes about, has, talks about the sheepfold, he says, everybody who ever came before me were nothing but thieves and robbers climbing upon the wall in different ways. He says, but the shepherd enters in by the gate of the sheepfold. And he says, he calls his sheep, he calls them by name. The oriental shepherd knows all his sheep by name, and those sheep he knows by name, they know his voice. That's important when you study John chapter 10. He comes to the sheepfold. The porter opens the door. He calls his sheep. They hear his voice. He calls them by their name. They come out one by one by one. When they all get out, then the Lord leads them. And that's what Psalms 23 is all about. The Lord leading them. Where is he going to lead them? He's going to lead them to the green pastures and the still waters. He wants them to have the greenest grass to graze. He wants them to have the purest water to drink. He says, uh, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not want for rest. I shall not want for refreshment. Then he says, he restoreth my soul. And he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Here we see the Lord being your great restorer. And leading you what? In the pathways of righteousness. When you follow the shepherd, you'll always be good. When you follow the shepherd, you'll always be in good shape because the shepherd's never going to lead you astray, you see. That's the picture that we have here in Psalms 23. Now notice here in verse 4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you shall not walk for protection. I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thou rod and thou staff that comfort me. You'll not want for companionship and friendship. The Lord is walking right by your side. He's going to protect you. He's going to lead you. He's going to direct you. He's going to feed you. He's going to be sure you got, again, the best of everything as far as feeding and drinking. He will restore you and lead you in the paths of rights for his name's sake. Then he says, Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Now, we're talking about the wilderness. We're talking about enemies. Sheep have enemies. They're all out there. You know, let me just say this about this. All the way through the Bible, the Lord speaks about his people as being sheep. Now, the Bible is written on three continents in three different languages by over 40-some men who lived hundreds and hundreds of years apart. How did they all know to call God's people sheep? How did they know that? Moses called them sheep. David called them sheep. Ezekiel called them sheep. Paul, Peter, the Lord. How did they all know to call God's people sheep who lived hundreds of years apart. That's the consistent throughout the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. One answer, one answer only. The Bible is given to divine inspiration of God. Divine inspiration of God. Now, I notice my head with oil. When he would bring them back at the end of the day, he would bring them back to the sheepfold. You know what the, he would do at the gate? Well, the door of the sheepfold, he had some oil there. As they came in, he would examine each and every one of them. 
If one of them had a bruise and a scrape, he'd take that oil and put on it. If one of them's head uh, uh, was bruised from whatever may have caused it sometimes, the sheep like to butt heads even, you know, you wouldn't think that, would you? You wouldn't think that, would you? <laughs> sometimes they do. And we saw where one had suffered, you know, from the other, he would take that oil and just spread it upon the head. In other words, you got a caring shepherd, don't you? you got a shepherd who loves you, a shepherd who cares for you. A shepherd is going to lead you in the path of righteousness, namesake. Going to lead you beside the still waters into the green grass of pasture. He's going to protect you. He's going to guide you and direct you. He's going to mend you. He's going to be a physician unto you. And then at the end, you know what? He brings you back to a, to a good home. <laughs> I like the way this ends. I like the way this ends when he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Forever. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's, that's your home, your long-term home, brethren. But from a practical setting, the good shepherd loves his sheep. He's there to guide them, direct them, and protect them, and to feed them, to give them the best care he could possibly give unto them. But while we have a chief shepherd, the Lord has seen to it to give his flock under shepherds who have the same love and care and concern for his sheep that the son did. Psalms 24. I got about two minutes on this one. Here is the return of the shepherd. Remember in Psalms 22, you have the good shepherd who gave his life. Psalms 23, the great shepherd, the resurrection, who cares for his sheep. Psalms 24, you got a picture of the chief shepherd who's coming for his sheep. <laughs> Remember what the Lord said in Matthew chapter 25? He said, the day will come when the Son of God shall come as a king in all his glory, and he shall divide his sheep from the goats, and he shall say to his sheep on the right hand, come you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now listen, he called you sheep. He says, you got a kingdom prepared for you since before the foundation of the world. And he's presenting that to you on his right hand. Now in this Psalms 24, it starts off giving glory to the God of creation. Notice he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded upon the seas, established upon the floods. Then he asked the question, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Answer, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. You know why I know that couldn't be David? He didn't have clean hands. He had a man killed. He didn't have a pure heart. He committed adultery. He was exalted one time with pride and numbered the people. So I know it can't be David. I can go from king to king to king to king, but I'm going to spare you from all of that because I'm just going to tell you about one king who does qualify for that, who does have clean hands, who does have a pure heart. And notice how he's described here. He says unto those of the city, this is a generation that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Question, who is this King of glory? Answer, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. There's not a place in God's word where God is described any less than this. He's the omnipotent God of heaven and earth. He's strong, he's mighty in battle. And he came as a mighty God 
to deliver you from your sins and bring you to heaven some sweet day. And thank God he's going to do that. He's the king of glory that shall come in. He's got the clean hands. He's got the pure heart, does he not? Verse 9, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift them up, O ye everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Question, who is this king of glory? Answer, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. When you study that word host, H-O-S-T-S, that has reference to creation. It has reference to the multitudes that Israel finally wound up being one day as a nation. It has, host to, has reference to the stars. And it has reference to God's elect family of God right here in this world. He is the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. He's our good shepherd, our great shepherd, our returning shepherd, our good shepherd, our great shepherd, our chief shepherd, dying for us, lives for us, coming back for us. When you read Psalms 23, don't leave Psalms 22 and 24 out.